Welcome to life, bringing you insight and experiences into love, relationships, and fertility with a focus on enjoying life and moving forward. Today, we have the pleasure of being here with Sheila Lim, who is going to talk to you about her journey to parenthood in her 40s and how she became an author and a fierce advocate. Welcome to life, love, insight, fertility, experiences. I am so excited to be here today with Sheila Lamb, who is an advocate, an author, and a mom who started to try and conceive when she was in her 40s. And just so lovely. I had the opportunity to reach out to her on Instagram once and then automatically felt connected. So Sheila, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today about your journey and how you came to become an author of so many books and to reach out and help so many people. Oh, thank you, Laurie. Well, thank you for asking me to be on your podcast. I'm honored. I think just your journey to get here is so important for people to understand and to be able to recognize that, you know, trying to have a child when you're when you're 40 or in your 40s is not something that is unusual. I mean, it's not typical, but it certainly is not unusual in today's day and age. Absolutely. I mean, as you say, I did start trying to conceive when I was 40. And that was hmm, that's a lot of years ago now. <laughs> a beautiful um, little girl right now. <laughs> <laughs> I remember actually. Previously to my journey, I was trained as a nurse and a midwife. And I remember when I was a midwife, we did have women who were maybe in their early 40s then, I seem to remember. And they were referred to as geriatric. Um, yes, geriatric mums to be, or it was a geriatric pregnancy. And then I was only in my late 20s at that time, but that didn't sit comfortably with me because I'd been a nurse before and geriatrics were... People who were in their 70s, 80s, 90s. It's so horrible when they do that. I just like, I'm holding my face right now like that, that expression. But it's horrible because it tugs at people in such a way to make them feel as if they have this medical condition, this disease, mm. really, right? It is a diagnosis. Mm. And then you're old. What a double whammy to get when you were a young person. I know. I, I hold my hands up. I probably didn't think about it too much then as a 28, 29 year old, the implications of how that person felt. And I do remember picking a girl, a woman who had conceived via IVF. And I remember kind of saying it quietly so nobody would hear. And so this is like 20 years ago. Lots change. I, I think in some cases, geriatric pregnancy is still around. In the States, absolutely. It is called geriatric in the States. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I think it's I think it still is here in the UK, actually. So I kind of as I say I was 40 and I kind of thought I may have problems getting pregnant. However, you know, I'd not smoked, I wasn't a drinker, never done drugs. I'm so boring, aren't I? <laughs> I wasn't overweight. I was thought you know, I hear this all the time from women. I hear well, I'm healthy. I'm getting my period every month. Mm. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't, yeah. I don't use drugs. Like I'm athletic. I'm healthy. I should never have a problem. I hear the same thing from men, but that's not necessarily the case. Exactly. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So my husband is 11 years younger than me. So I had to kind of warn him that mm, this might not go to plan. It didn't go to plan. We were trying for a year. And then we went to our GP who told us to carry on trying. And I was like, you do realize my age. 
look at some of my notes. I am you know, 40, 41 by this time. Yeah, let's just carry on trying. So we did for another six months and then went back and saw another doctor, fortunately. And they referred us to a fertility consultant. Before we went, I'd been tracking my basal body temperature. So oh, I had wow. some parts. I, I don't know whether, it, as I say, maybe it was because of my medical knowledge in the background. But anyway, I remember going to see this fertility doctor with my three months worth of charts. And I was like a child with a school report. He didn't even look at them. No. He didn't even, he offered them. He didn't, he wasn't interested in them. It was, it was straight. Well, we'll do this test. We'll do this test on you. And we'll do this test on your husband. No, 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 you know. So I suppose, you know, you are vulnerable at that point, aren't you? Even though it's early on in your journey. That's so important. I think that's so important. When you say you are vulnerable at that point, you know, it's really, you start to feel the medical intervention and you start to feel that lack of control. Mm, even though, as I say, you know, years before I wasn't practicing nurse or a practicing midwife then. But here you even took your charting of your basic architecture <laughs> and you brought it and he was like, you know, not acknowledging it. That he even knew. What that does to you just inside emotionally is hard. That is like a first introduction, feeling that medical intervention of not feeling empowered no absolutely absolutely and you know at the time you're so emotionally in it you can't always take a step back think straight I think what happens with a lot of men is they do refer to the woman do research and to make the appointment my husband didn't have a didn't have any medical background so he obviously assumed I knew best or I knew more so um we were um diagnosed with unexplained infertility, which again, didn't really sit that comfortably with me because nothing's unexplained, just maybe hasn't been found out yet. Yeah. And there's so much of that to have to sit with that so many people get that diagnosis. Yes. And I'm hearing that more and more. And this this was a while ago that you had to go through this, but why unexplained? I'm hearing that more and more from the people I work with. Why can't they just find out? Yes, yeah. And I think to men trying to be rational at the time was like, well, okay, there's two people involved in this disease. Normally, it's just one body, a female body or a male body, whatever. Now you've got somehow two people have to be involved, mm-hmm. egg and a sperm, if you like. So it does but make it. There's two people. It does make it a little bit more complicated, I suppose. So because we had unexplained, we decided to do IUI first. In um, it is less invasive, and as I said, you know, I thought I was healthy. I thought, you know, all the things it would work. We went to a clinic in London that specialised, even at that time, you know, sort of fifteen or so years ago, specialised in the in the older woman. But actually, when I turned up, was very young women there. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't really. Well, I know you can't always tell, but I didn't think it was mainly, you know, older women at all. But anyway, we did the IUI and that wasn't successful. And the clinic suggested we did IVF. And I guess, like most people, we thought that IUI cycle work would be the answer. And I think we were knocked sideways when it didn't work. So we moved on to IVF. And at that time, the chromosome testing, it was called PGS and PGD. I know it's now called lots of other letters. Our clinic was one of the first in the UK to offer this chromosome testing. And they said, because you're 41, coming up to 42, it would probably be advisable that you also had your chromosomes tested. 
and it showed we had six eggs. Six eggs collected, and I think they all fertilised with ICD, and only one had all the chromosomes that were tested. Mm-hmm. The others were, well, you know, was maybe missing a Y chromosome. So it only had one sex chromosome. One was missing two 18s, a 13, and a Y. You know, so they were very... Right. But definitely nothing was going to happen with these chromosomes. So we had one, the one embryo put back. I don't even think I got the two weeks. I think my period started before then. Um, oh, that cycle wasn't successful. Again, which we were like, what? How, you know, why didn't it work? Mm-hmm. It should have worked. There was no reason why it shouldn't work. It was unsuccessful. We went back, had a meeting. He said the results from the embryos were the typical of a woman in her early 40s, we really advise you to do, don- um, you know, to look at donor eggs. We weren't ready to look at donor eggs at that point because we had unexplained so to us. Now they were kind of explaining it. Yes, yes. But we could still get pregnant, you know. Yeah. The reason why not, I didn't have tubes, we didn't have thermos use. So in theory. I can't even imagine how hard it is to hear that. When it's nothing that is ever on your mind that you're going to be having a child through donor conception when you mm-hmm. first hear it. Unless, of course, you're in you know, a, a relationship with somebody that's same sex yes. or that you want to have a child on your own. But for a heterosexual couple, it's the last thing that you necessarily think of. If you both consider yourself healthy and active, you know, and yeah. risk factor. So it's very hard. Yes, yes. And because... Even now, couples don't talk about it. I was always very open, even somebody standing in the queue, because I used to, if it came up, somehow it would come up. Because I thought, well, I don't know what you know. Right. You might know something that I need to know. <laughs> That's so special of you, though. It really is. It's a gift that people don't recognize the sharing of the information. I think now they're beginning to. But so what did they say if you were on the, on the train and you started to talk about it? What would people say? I remember specifically what people said, but I do remember overhearing a woman in a shop. So I was standing behind her and she must have said something about the baby she was expecting was an egg, was a donor, an egg donor. So she, I think she was maybe talking to somebody she knew. So of course I immediately, you know, jumped into what she was saying. And I really wanted to go up to her and say, I ask you, but I, I, I know, I remember I didn't. Certainly, because I kind of thought, this was just, this is just me because I was in my forties. Family and friends they probably didn't say so much about when are you going to have children. Maybe they thought we didn't want children. If you're in your twenties, you thirties, know, I think you possibly get asked that question mm-hmm. a lot more than we did. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was just my family and friends didn't ask that much, but I certainly told them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I don't know, you know, but I do think when people are young, it is a question that people ask and they don't ask to create a problem. They ask innocently, but sometimes it can yeah. be very hurtful. So nobody was asking, but then, so you went ahead and you decided to use a donor. That must've been a hard, a hard um, decision. Yeah. Well, it wasn't a quick decision. It took us about three years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because after the, after the failed ICSI cycle, we went away and carried on trying naturally. I did acupuncture, hypnotherapy, had my hair tested for minerals, kinesiology, took Chinese herbs, uh-huh. um, and nothing happened. And 
perhaps in the back of our minds was always a possibility that we would need to use an egg donor. Uh-huh. So it was a good two and a half years right. before we, I don't know if we even accepted it. It was just, I was reading a magazine on a Sunday from a Sunday paper. And there was an interview in there with a fertility nurse in a Spanish clinic. And it was about egg donation. And it was like, you know, how the universe sometimes puts things in front of you. You're supposed to see. Maybe we'd seen information before, but we hadn't been ready to receive it. So I don't know. You don't know, right, how it happens. But mm. you certainly put time in and you certainly tried quite a range of things prior to making your decision. Yes. Yeah. And I know we didn't buy UI1 IVF. You know, we were paying for all of that ourselves. Everything yeah, I think it's so for. important, too, for people to feel comfortable with what they've done. Mm. And, you know, like kind of leaving no stone unturned that they feel like they have to turn over. Absolutely. Yeah. Because otherwise it, it gnaws at you. Yes. Yes. You know? yeah. And I've seen it on both sides with people. And I think because because we did the PGS testing, I think, and they were saying that's typical of women of your age, her eggs. Whether it is or not, I don't really know because I'm, I'm not first in egg quality and that sort of thing. But it was a case of, well, if we do IVF again, are we just going to get the same answer? We're going to get the same results, you know? So is there any point throwing another six, seven thousand pounds? So it's so expensive, right? Even oh, yes. Company, even with insurance coverage, it can be so expensive financially, but also emotionally and physically. It takes a huge toll on people. Yes, yeah, it does. And, and again, because I talked about it, I remember saying to my sister, when you do something like IVF, it's like going into a car showroom, handing over a lump of money and saying, okay, I won't bother about the car and just walking out with nothing. And I think when I said that to her, I think she was like, oh, Right, I get it now. No, you haven't got the, the emotions not there, obviously, because it's only a car, but the money side. So anyway, we probably ready, if you like, to accept we, if we were going to become parents and I was going to, it would be with uh, egg donor. And in Spain, it's anonymous. It was anonymous then, and it still is anonymous. It wasn't in the UK. And my husband, more so than me, wasn't happy with donor situation in the UK. Plus there was a oh, wait. I was by this time 45. Mm-hmm. Two year wait. That took me up to 47. So it was a difficult decision really. That's why we went to Spain. It was close by so we didn't have long journeys. And we went to the clinic that was in the article because <laughs> our process of elimination was because there was an English nurse there. <laughs> We don't speak Spanish. (laughs) And that was really, although we did go to the clinic, actually, we were very impressed. Although it was a very small clinic, it was just the one doctor, we saw just him. So did you get the egg from Spain as well? Did you do an egg selection? Yes, yes. So the egg donor was Spanish. Well, so we understand because we went to south of Spain because there's more of a sort of what we were told was the population there was more similar to UK. So I actually don't know if the donor was actually Spanish mm. or the information we had was like hair colour, eye colour, height, weight, what she did as a job, what she did as a hobby. That was all the information we had. They do try and match her up, obviously, with my height, my weight, right. her eyes. That was, another, that was another thing we knew. So after our initial consultation, they found a donor. We were happy with that. And we did the cycle. Mm-hmm. 
went out to Spain and did the cycle, which obviously was a lot easier as in weren't so many objections to do emotionally and obviously is it going to work, etc. was was, you know, still hard. So we did the cycle. I got pregnant. First time ever. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was short-lived. I miscarried at about six and a half weeks. When we went for a six-week scan, we couldn't see anything. And there was a lot of blood in my uterus. So oh. I went on to have a natural miscarry. I didn't go into hospital. I didn't need to go into hospital for anything. And I think maybe because I hadn't gone into hospital, although I don't know whether I would have done, didn't know where to find anybody who'd had a miscarriage or where the support was. I'd had a friend who'd had a miscarriage, but she'd gone on and had another child since. And sometimes you don't necessarily want to talk lots because it will bring up things for that person. You do want the support. You do need the support. You do. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) We went to a clinic in a different country. I don't know whether it would have been different if we'd gone to a clinic in this country and they'd said, well, you can contact is charity. So I just did my own research, went on YouTube, and I came across a miscarriage consultant in the UK who had had success with women who'd had multiple miscarriages. I mean, I'd only had one miscarriage, which is enough. Also, obviously, we'd had unsuccessful IVF. And it's so common to have a miscarriage. It's not an uncommon thing. Exactly. Exactly. So what happened? Well, we contacted him, told him our story, had some tests done. At the same time as finding him was I read the book by Dr. Alan Beer, Is Your Body Baby Friendly? The doctor in the UK was had kind of trained under Dr. Alan Beer. I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Alan Beer. But he did lots of investigations into natural killer cells, thrombophilia, which is blood clotting, active leaden, immune issues, all of that being a cause for miscarriage, which some people believe and some people, that's why I know now, and I think what we'd learned by then, because we've been trying to conceive for five years by this time, was that you have to go with your gut instincts. You know, you have to, what feels right to you, if you want to change clinics because you're not happy with the doctor, you need to do that. There's no point just keep going on and on and getting the same result, but it isn't the result you want. Is that what spurred you on to want to write the books? Well, kind of in a way, yes, because um, I mean, the books are collections of people's stories. And I think stories really help in your journey want of another word if you haven't got the support from your own family and friends it's so often we find they don't say the right thing to us exactly exactly so with the books I started off when my first book was actually a glossary of terms and that came about because of having to do all this research and I was like well I was a nurse and a midwife there must be good about the nurses and midwives so the first book my fertility book is just literally a glossary of terms from a to z infertility and fertility and then I published that and I realized that people were being much more open and honest now about their own journeys and that was on Instagram I kind of thought well people aren't necessarily on Instagram knowing there's this big community of people sharing their stories so I wonder if people would want to share their story in a book and so that was how books series came about I decided to do a book about each arts of infertility so the first one is simply about trying to conceive not doing any um fertility treatment or anything like that just purely about trying to conceive because a lot of people who try to conceive they go on and have a baby naturally 
yes. which is lovely. They go yes. on to have baby fertility treatment, which is lovely. You know, even though I wasn't trying to get pregnant at this point, because my daughter was actually about eight by this time, her story still helped me because people weren't talking about it when I was trying to conceive. Don't you find it so important that we understand and that if we haven't had time to fully process our own story, then in writing or in reading or in just talking, it helps us to process it. So Instagram is a huge community, but it's not everybody. A lot of people aren't on Instagram that are going through fertility journeys. So the book is a wonderful way to share information with other people. Well, that's exactly right, because I thought, well, you know, books are global. And as you say, not everyone knows on Instagram that there's this community. So each of the book, the next book is actually purely about fertility treatment, IVF, IUI. Next book is purely about two-week waits when you've been through infertility treatment. That is different after you've been two-week waits when you've done treatment, isn't it? Next one is pregnancy loss and baby loss. And the fifth one is the one I just published in May, which is pregnancy after infertility and loss. Because, again, nobody's talking. Nobody was talking about how anxiety. Yes, it's such an important topic to do that, to talk about that. So I thought it was wonderful that you wrote that book. I really did. And you offer free downloads of some of your books as well. Yes, yes. um, Actually, it it was just after the pandemic. It's not part of the series, but it's a very similar book. And it's just a collection of stories from women um, from ethnic minority groups because mm-hmm. they have additional challenges from uh, from sort of community and cultural expectations. So that's that book is everything from trying to conceive all the way through to surrogacy and child free after infertility. Uh-huh. That's purely just ethnic women and the ebook is free from my website and from instagram the, the, the paperback is available on amazon and other wherever else you can get books from I ask you something so you had your, your daughter right after all yes the- so the next cycle we did was successful because although i had these tests done and they were all normal that the consultant agreed that i could do and it's basic it is the protocol if you do have thrombophilia Reunis use, which is a steroid, that's in an injection and aspirin. Um, and my clinic was happy for me to do that. So we had a new donor because it was only about three months afterwards after right. the miscarriage. And so we couldn't go with the previous donor. And we had no no frozen eggs, no frozen embryos rather. So we did it with another another donor. I took these drugs and um and yes, we got pregnant and yeah, my daughter's now Evan. Wow. Unbelievable, right? She's so, yes. So do you share the story with your daughter? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. We didn't tell her as young as I wanted to. I don't really know why. I think I've just took over as it does, you know, the busyness. Yes. Um, People find that hard to believe sometimes when they're going through it. You know, that it all of a sudden it doesn't take top priority in a conversation. Obviously, that you know, the concerns I had, you know, would my daughter look like me? Would my daughter love me? Would I bond with my daughter? As soon as I saw this four cell embryo that was transferred, as I was said, that was my baby. That wasn't anyone else's baby. That was my baby. As soon as I knew I was pregnant, I was carrying our child. It was never, and maybe it's not the same for everybody. Yes, those concerns, once I'd had her, and people said to me, oh, doesn't she look like you? still do 
I mean, you don't know, you know. People see what they want to see at the end of the day. And maybe there are aspects of her that do look like you because people do look alike, whether they're genetically related or not. I have a stepson, an older stepson who has two children. And people tell me all the time that one of the children looks just like me. And I'm like, well, that's kind of impossible. But (laughs) I suppose there is a similarity when we look at pictures where people could say that. People do look alike. It's just true. But if it's your child, she's going to pick up all your mannerisms and all of your habits. And oh my goodness, of course. And then there's that uniqueness. Telling the story is, you know, something that I find so important to try and help intended parents with, regardless of the age that you decide to tell, but the importance of it for the mom and the dad, as well as for the child. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were always going to tell her. I mean, we didn't get much advice from clinic. We didn't have Um, it then, I think. You know, certainly not back then. There weren't the books that there are these days. There's some amazing books that I would definitely say read when the babies. I mean, I used to say to my daughter when I was cuddling her, and I used to say to her, you know, mommy, you know, we had to use another lady's eggs, very kind lady. Well, obviously, she was a baby in arms, so she would understand. That helps you. Exactly. That's what I say about the books. It helps you find the words that you want to use, or even if you've kept of like a book records. The child's journey. I mean, you know, we all like to hear about, even me at my age, I like to hear what I was like as a child, you know. So we all still like it. And certainly children love to hear about themselves. Um, but she doesn't ask a lot of questions at the moment. She knows, obviously. And in fact, funnily enough, the other day she said we were talking about atoms. I don't know how we got into the conversation, but we were. Not that it lasted very long because I know very little. I said, oh, you know, everything's made of atoms. And she just turned around and she said, so that means I'm a third daddy, I'm a third you, and I'm a third the donor. Mm-hmm. That was her way of... Wonderful. I mean, it's just, it just gives me the chills. It's really quite profound as you're talking yes. about Adam, because it is true, right? It, it is a true and, You know, if I knew she was going to say that when I was trying to get pregnant, maybe I wouldn't have been happy hearing that. But I didn't mind hearing that. I thought it was lovely that she was making the donor as equally as important uh-huh. Me, her mum, and her dad. Or maybe biologically as important. Well, yes, biologically. I mean, yes, yes. I mean, that, yeah. that's kind of what I mean. You know, she, she, you know. Yes, she understood that. Um, it's three things to have a baby. Three people. Yes, yes, yeah. Yes. Um, and, and she's never, you know, she's never said, and I meet her, or we just say we don't know who the lady is. But she knows it yeah. was, we went to a Spanish clinic. And it's not something we talk about every day, obviously. It might just come up about something. She might say, oh, you know, I wonder where this has come from or about herself, you know, like she tans easily and I don't, I'm pale. Um, and I say, well, that's probably because, you know, the, the, the lady was, was Spanish. So you know, Spanish people tan, often tan easier than um, English people. And, and she's just like, oh, okay. Some people have no interest in meeting a donor and some people have every interest in the world yeah. meeting a donor. Everybody's different. Well, Sheila, thank you so much for sharing your story and for the books that you write and the information available. It really is truly such a gift that you give so many people. So well, if somebody you. wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Well, the best way really is on Instagram and I'm at Fertility Books. Um, I think you can also search Sheila Lamb as well. I, I do have a website, it's updating. <laughs> so probably best to come through Instagram. Uh, email is Sheila at MFSBooks. 
on. And it's lovely to get emails from people either, you know, asking, how did I feel about this? How, often about donation, because as I say, I didn't have that when I was going through it. So I'm more than happy to, you know, help anybody with a little bit of a hug, if you like. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, really. And if anybody has any questions or comments, please reach out to me at lauriemetz.net. Thank you, Laurie. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm.